Let's pray together. Father, that is what we want to do. We want to hide ourselves in Jesus. We don't have anything in our hands to bring to you, to commend ourselves to you. All we have to bring within ourselves is that which is offensive and riddled and fouled by sin. And yet we know that you've loved us and because of your great love for us, you sent your love, your son Jesus to die for us. And so we just look away from ourselves and look to him. And uh, thank you, Father. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we open your word. And we pray that you would help us to know who we are in Christ. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up the son of a high school football coach. So I grew up around sporting events all my life. Even before I was old enough to play myself, I was around fields and practices. And on one Saturday, when I was about seven years old, my mom and I went to a track meet that my dad was coaching at. And in those days, you didn't uh, have as many or any uh, plastic bottles to put soft drinks in. Uh, mainly, they were in glass bottles. Some of you might remember those days. And um, I can't remember why I had this uh, bottle that I was carrying, whether it was from my own drink or I may have found it on the ground. I can't remember. But I was carrying this glass bottle in my hand as we were walking up to, these, uh, to, to this stadium where the track meet was taking place. And my mom saw it, and when she saw it, she said, you need to throw that away immediately. And so um, we walked on up, and I didn't listen to her. And I did what I normally do, which is to go underneath the stadium and to find something to play with or someone to play with. And so I go under there to, to play, and I kept the bottle. I was not throwing it away. In fact, I was playing with the bottle next to this chain link fence. And I think I managed to break the top off the bottle or something. Uh, that, all, that whole part is still uh, is, is fuzzy to me. But after a little while, I, I emerged from underneath the bleachers and I found my mom again. And I still had the bottle in my hand. And so she sees me. She's not happy at all about this. I hadn't obeyed her. And, I, and in fact, not only had I not obeyed her, I was playing with, with, with this bottle. And completely indifferent to what she had told me to do. And so she, shall we say, made her displeasure known to me and told me immediately to put the bottle in the trash. So I turned around and walked across the pavement towards a nearby trash can to throw it away. But on the way to the trash can, I tripped in this pothole, lost my footing, and fell forward. And involuntarily, without uh, even thinking about it, I just put my hands out to catch myself as I was falling. The only problem was I still had this bottle in my hand that I wasn't supposed to have in my hand. And so the, the bottle smashed in between my hand and, and the pavement as I came, 
came down. And I had this huge gash in my hand. I was injured at that point. There was blood all over the place. I'm standing there by myself and I just start doing like this. I'm just shaking my hand with, and the blood just going all over the place. And uh, my mom comes running over and I'm getting it all over her. And uh, I don't even know the extent of the damage. I'm just shaking my hand like this, slinging blood all over the place. And I didn't know it, but I had cut my hand right underneath my finger right here. And it was about halfway through. So I wasn't helping anything by doing this. And so they took me to the hospital and um, I didn't just have stitches. They had to do reconstructive surgery to reattach my partially severed finger. And um, after it was done, I couldn't move my, my finger anymore. It was just, uh, it just sat there. I had a cast on it for a while, but they took the cast off and couldn't move my finger. And in, in the years that followed, I was able to regain a little bit. This is what I got now. As a, as a man, but um, I, can't straight it out, I can't straighten it out. Sometimes I tell people I can point around the corner. Uh, <laughs> if I want to point straight, I got to do it. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> if you've ever wondered, that's what happened uh, to, to, to my finger. But I haven't had full use of this finger since I was seven years old, since I was seven years old. And all of that because um, I came out from under the supervision of my authority and decided to disobey rather than to obey. What is it about us that makes us so prone to go our own way when we think nobody is looking? When we think that the authorities that are over us are no longer looking at us, what is it about us that makes us so prone not only to disobey parents, but also to defy um, God. We know the standard, but we become so tempted to, to fudge the standard when we think that nobody's looking. And even we can think that way about God's authority, even though that we know that there's never a time that he's, he's not looking. And yet, this is what we, we do. There's something about us that makes us prone to defy even God's authority, even when we know that so much is, is at stake. There's a proverb that says, the foolishness of man subverts his way and his heart rages against the Lord. There's something in our heart that's going on here. Our failures in faithfulness really turn out to be a failure in heart and how much we need the grace of God to sustain us in the faith if we're going to be able to finish this, this race at all as Christians. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to begin studying a letter to a group of people who began to act up when they thought that their authority, in this case the Apostle Paul, when they thought he wasn't looking. Because he was gone from them. And so we're going to do a series through 1 Corinthians. And you may remember that Paul founded the church in Corinth in, uh, during one of his missionary journeys that's recorded in Acts chapter 18. And if you remember, uh, Paul came into Corinth and he preached the gospel there in the synagogue. And he preached there until the, the Jews in the synagogue didn't want him preaching there anymore and they threw him out. And then he began to preach at 
uh, in another place into a, a, a house that was next door to the synagogue. He began preaching to the Gentiles and a number of the Gentiles came to faith and he stayed with them and he discipled them for about a year and a half before he finally got uh, run out of town in, in, in essence. And so Paul's relationship with the Corinthians that he's writing to in 1 Corinthians was unique because uh, he was, had been with them for so long. He didn't just c- come into town, preach the gospel, and then he was gone three weeks later, like when he preached in Thessalonica. He was with them for a year and a half. He had a significant amount of time, not only to see them believe the gospel, but also time to witness their growth to some extent in the gospel. But now in this book of 1 Corinthians that we're looking at today, he's writing to them about four to five years after he had had left them. And since he had left them, he had heard that some things had gone really badly. um, They were not obeying what he had told them to do in a number of different areas. And that's why he's writing the letter. It's, he's, he's writing to address their issues. He's heard reports about divisions within the church, about sexual immorality within the church, about members going to, taking out lawsuits against one another before secular authorities. He's heard about marriage issues and spiritual gifts issues. He's even heard that some people are denying the resurrection from the dead. So the disobedience that's going on in Paul's absence since he left Corinth, it wasn't a small thing. It was, it was a pretty big thing. And in, in fact, it was a potentially existential thing. And so he's writing to them this letter with a certain amount of urgency to it to correct their error and then to win them back to gospel faithfulness. And so what we're going to look at this morning are the first nine verses of this. And in these first nine verses, um, he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of all the issues that they're dealing with yet. But the first nine verses, um, they still lay the groundwork for everything else that is to come. And in fact, even though they're basically introductory, um, they're absolutely foundational for getting the rest of the book. And so really, I've got two points this morning for nine verses. Verses 1 through 3 is an intro to Paul's letter. And verses 4 through 9 are an intro to Paul's heart. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about, an intro to Paul's heart as we get into this. But take a look here at verses 1 through 3 and an intro to Paul's letter. Look what Paul says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, that reference to his brother Sosthenes, sometimes Paul will mention people that he's traveling with. It happened to be with them. Sosthenes is an interesting uh, convert to the gospel. But notice what he says about himself here. This letter is starting out like a typical letter would in the first century world. Letters typically had four parts in the first century world. They had uh, a salutation, a thanksgiving, a body, and a conclusion. And so the salutation is the part at the very beginning. And uh, it's a little bit different than the way we do things. When we write letters, we say, you know, dear so-and-so, Um, you know, the body of the letter. And then at the end of the letter, you say, love Denny or yours truly Denny. You sign your name at the bottom. In an ancient letter, like the one Paul is writing, they always put all the information up front, who it's coming from and then who it's, who it's to. And so it's clear that Paul is writing this and Paul does what he commonly does when he names himself. He, he takes that standard form and he expands it 
to establish something about his own identity and his relationship to the people that he's, he's writing to. And he's, he's trying to say um, something that's foundational for the rest of the letter. He highlights three things about himself. And if we were to give uh, verse 1 a kind of a literal rendering, this is what he says. He says, Paul, a called apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God. Paul, a called apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God. Now, the first thing to notice there is he calls himself an apostle of, of Christ, which means if you're an apostle, um, that's somebody who's an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, which we know Paul was that because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him. Paul has this powerful conversion experience. So not anybody can be an apostle. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ with your own eyes. And then the second thing that has to have happened is it, the resurrected Christ had to have commissioned you to be his special appointed communicator of his revelation. Both of the, those things happened when Jesus encountered um, Saul, and who then became called Paul. So a person can't make themselves into an apostle. This is something only Jesus himself can do by appearing to that person. And that brings us to the second thing he says there. He's not just an apostle. He says he's called. He's a called apostle, which refers to the fact that it was Jesus himself who appeared to Paul and called him to salvation and to apostleship. And it all happened at once. Some people talk about getting saved and then later on getting called to ministry. Not for Paul. It all happens at once. When he calls him forth to be saved, he's calling him forth to be an apostle and sending him forth. And then Paul says this, through the will of God. This calling from Jesus to be his specially ordained spokesman happens through the will of God, which means that his calling is an exercise of the singular divine will of God, the Father and of God, the Son. The cumulative force of all of this, his self-description of himself, is one of authority. Do you get that? If Paul is really a called apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God, then everything that he writes in this letter has divine authority behind it. Everything. You don't get to pick and choose the parts you like and, you know, sort of take out the parts you don't like. All of it is being delivered with a divine authority. Paul is reminding them of this because he is going to have to confront them. I believe that in this book, he is going to confront us. And the calling is, is that if God has spoken through a man, we've got to listen to the man if we want to listen to God. We don't pick the parts we like and then just let go of the parts we don't like. If you argue with Paul, which has become sort of fashionable these days, you are arguing with God. And you don't want to be crosswise with God. Jesus sent Paul forth on his behalf. But look what he says in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So 
Just as Paul identifies himself at some length, he's going to do the same thing with the people that he's writing to. This too implies their relationship. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, this term, um, I, don't, I don't usually do this, but I do want to introduce a, a Greek term here, okay? The word that's translated as church comes from the Greek term ekklesia. Many of you have heard uh, that term before, but this term ekklesia, it just means congregation or, or a gathering of people. It was used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the gathering of, of Israel, the congregation of Israel. But now he's referring to this congregation of God, as it were. And by calling it God's congregation, he's saying that God is the one who's gathered these people. So when Paul says, you are God's congregation, he's saying God gathered you together in Corinth. How did he do that? What makes them God's congregation? What makes them so special and different from other congregations of people? I mean, if God's creator, don't all congregations belong to God? No, this is a different kind of a congregation. What's different? It's different and unique from every other gathering because Paul says that they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, which I think most likely means sanctified by Christ Jesus. And so this congregation has been set apart from sin, set apart unto God's purposes by King Jesus himself. Not every congregation can say that about their gathering, that they've been set apart by Jesus himself for God's purposes. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins, and he rose from the grave to give them eternal life. That's how Jesus sanctifies people. That's the work that he did on behalf of sinners to save them, to change them, to bring forth all the fruits of righteousness in them. But how did this particular group of people come to share in the benefits of what Christ did to sanctify people? Well, he says it in the next phrase. He says they're sanctified by Christ Jesus, but then he says what? They're called to be saints. And the phrase literally is almost just like what he, when he said he was a called apostle. He says they're called saints. And the reason that they are included in this congregation is because God called them. Just as God, Jesus appeared to Paul and called him forth and said, you are my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. God comes to sinners and he calls them forth to see and to hear and believe what they ought to see and hear and believe when the gospel is, is preached to them. So, and we know how they got the, the gospel preached to them because Paul was the one who preached it to them. Paul preached the word and the Holy Spirit of God opened their hearts and minds to believe, and the Holy Spirit called them forth. And so just as he's a called apostle, they are called saints. Now, unlike our Roman Catholic friends, we do not believe saints to be an honorific title, a special category of Christians, only given to a certain, you know, really special Christians. That's not what a saint is. Paul says that every believer is a saint. And a saint is someone who's been sanctified, okay? It kind of harkens back to the previous phrase. Somebody who's been set apart. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are sanctified. You are a saint set apart for his purposes. And he's saying to the Corinthians and to us, you are called saints. How did you become a saint? God called you forth and gathered you together into this congregation. And then he says this. You're called saints together with 
all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Which means there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's not a Corinthian way to follow Christ, an Ephesian way, a Roman way. There is one way. All who call on the Lord Jesus in every place are following that one way or they aren't following him at all. There is one apostolic gospel that is defined by God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you believe that gospel or you're not believing at all. And that message is the same in every place for every other local gathered body of, of believers. And that's why Paul says this, which means you don't get to make this up as you go along. You're confessing the faith once for all delivered to the saints, saints who are in every place. So do you see how Paul has set the table here? He defines himself according to what God has commanded him to be, and he defines the Corinthian believers according to what God has commanded them to be. He understands himself and identifies himself in terms of God's calling. He defines the Corinthians in terms of God's calling. Everything that follows in this letter hangs on whether or not the Corinthians accept this. If they accept Paul as God's authoritative spokesman to them, and if they understand themselves as God's sanctified people, then there's hope for them. And hope that they will be able to handle the confrontation that Paul is about to have with them in the rest of the letter. If any one of them refuses Paul's calling or their own calling, then they have not yet embraced the gospel. This is definitionally who they are. I would say it's definitely, definitionally who we are. You know, I became a Christian when I was nine years old. That's when I first professed faith in Christ and trusted in him to save me from my sins. And I, and I believe that he did save me then. I was baptized when I was nine. But by the time I was in, in junior high school, I had started to, to drift. And um, I never renounced Christ with my words, but I had begun to renounce Christ with my deeds and in the attitudes of my heart. And I, had, I was a, a junior high kid. I wanted to be one of the cool kids. And to do that required a certain level of disobedience and defiance. And, and all the cool kids back in those days were uh, drinking alcohol behind their parents' back. And so I started doing this too. And... Um, I was deceiving my parents. I was showing up at parties with older kids that had alcohol and doing something that I knew defied my parents and dishonored God. And this subterfuge that I had going on lasted for months and months and months. And I got away with it. And I thought it was cool when I, when I did it. But it didn't feel so cool whenever I would go to bed at night and put my head on the pillow and had to think about things. It was then that I had to face my conscience and the grieving of the Holy Spirit that was going on because of my deception and, and the sinful things that I was pursuing. I knew I was wrong. I even asked forgiveness. Night after night, I would do this mantra of asking God for forgiveness. But it was an ask that came with no real repentance. 
And so I stayed unhappy and I stayed unsettled in my, my most honest moments. But one day, uh, my parents got wise to what was going on and what I had been doing. And I'll never forget what they did. It was a real shaping moment in, in my life. Um, when they confronted me, they sat me down. And uh, the first thing that they did was to ask me if the reports that they had heard about what I was doing were true. And I said, yes, um, they are true. The second thing that they did was to appeal to my conscience. And they just said this. This is honestly, this is, I'll never forget this, sitting in their bedroom. This is what they said to me. They said, is this the way a Christian young man is supposed to live? Lying, drinking. And through relieved tears, I said, no, it's not. And my parents were not slow about meeting out discipline or, or punishments. They were diligent about those things, but it was really a, a strange thing. They didn't discipline me this time. And uh, they didn't need to. And I think that somehow they knew that they didn't need to because in that moment I renounced what I was doing and put it behind me and I was done with it. And I never looked back. Why? Because it was not who I was. I already knew that. They knew that. I belong to Jesus. I would not, I couldn't go back to an open contradiction that I was living in and that I didn't like anyway. My conscience couldn't sustain it and I didn't want to sustain it. Did you know that the first step in gaining victory over your sin as a Christian is simply understanding who you are in Jesus? That you don't belong to you anymore? You have been sanctified. You have been set apart for his purposes. Paul is going to say later in this letter, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Some of you in here are walking in open defiance of God in some key areas of your life. You know what those areas are. God knows what those areas are, but nevertheless, you're still defying him. And the question that you're going to have to settle is this. Is this what a Christian is supposed to do? Is this what a person set apart by Christ, a called saint, is supposed to be and to do? If you answer that question, yes, that your sin is just fine with walking with Jesus, then there is a real question about whether you know Christ. Because there is no fellowship between light and darkness. And no matter what you feel in your heart, your sin is not compatible with following Jesus. But if your answer to that question is no, this is not consistent with my identity in Christ, then there is a ray of hope. Because there is in your heart the recognition of the reality that your sin is not compatible with following Jesus. And that you have laid the groundwork in admitting that for repentance and moving forward with Christ. But you will never get to repentance. You will never get to confession if you don't know who you are and who your authority is. 
So the question is, do you know? Paul is saying this right up front. I'm an apostle by the will of God. You are a saint and you belong to Jesus. This is Paul saying, do you know who you are? If you do, you better be listening to every word that's about to come out of my mouth. Because it's a message from God. All the confrontations that follow in this book will resolve or not on whether or not they get this right. And they will resolve or not in your life on whether or not you get this right. So this is an intro to Paul's letter, but it's not just any intro. It's a declaration of authority and of identity. Second thing is this, an intro to Paul's heart quickly. In essence, Paul's heart was one of profound thanksgiving for the grace of God evident in the Corinthian church. And so look at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is clearly Paul's celebration of God's undeserved favor in the hearts of the Corinthians. This was something he beheld with his own eyes because he evangelized them. And he saw them respond to the gospel in faith. He, he saw them and he describes them here. He describes their calling into the faith as the grace of God that was given to you. And so he's thanking God for what he has already done in them. And he gets real specific about the results of grace in their lives. Look at verse 5. The grace of God did this, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Now, don't let any word of that be lost on you because it's all important. Paul says that he's thankful that God's grace supplied them with all speech and all knowledge. Now, what's he talking about here? After the Corinthians came to faith, they began to receive grace gifts from the Holy Spirit. Manifestations of the Spirit that were happening in that community. Spirit-inspired speech in the form of tongues and in the form of prophecy. And they also received Spirit-inspired knowledge. So they had all speech, all knowledge as a result of this, this grace. They were able to say things and know things that they weren't able to say and know before they received the grace of Christ. That's what that means. What you don't want to miss here is the fact that those two areas that he's thanking God for are precisely the two areas that they're having problems with. And that Paul is going to confront them about later in the book. In chapters 12 through 14, three chapters of telling them you're doing it wrong. You're coming, you're, you're, at, you're coming to church and you're all talking at once and speaking in tongues and prophecy. You're, you're, you're totally out of order. And he takes three chapters to tell them, you're doing this selfishly and you've got to stop. Same thing with knowledge. He says, you've been enriched with all knowledge. Chapter 8, he's going to come back and he's going to tell them, you're doing this wrong too. Knowledge makes arrogant, he says in chapter 8. If anyone supposes that he's known anything, he is not known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Their whole idea of knowledge was, go was going askew too. So the whole reason Paul is writing to them is not because things are going well with them, but because things are going wrong with them. And in specifically with respect to their words, their speech, and their knowledge. And this is the point I want you to see. And yet in spite of that confrontation that's to come, Paul is still still genuinely thankful for them. 
and thankful that they've received those gifts. In verse 6, he says this, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. When they were given these gifts, Paul is saying it was an evidence that the testimony of Christ, which means the gospel of Jesus, it was an evidence that that message had been confirmed in them. They were really converted. In verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, even though they were misusing their gifts, Paul still found a way to be thankful for them. Paul's heart for them is to be grateful for the grace of, of, of God and what he has done. It's not his heart to be disappointed in them and the fact that there's still so much left undone in them. This is so hard for us to get. Do you see, do you see what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see that Paul's got a large heart here. The Corinthians are messing things up. Paul is still thankful for them. He's not a glass half empty kind of a guy on this, okay? Um, he's not a Debbie Downer glass half empty personality. That's not who he is. And, but there are a lot of us in the church who are like that. Those of us who have the gift of criticism <laughs> and only of seeing the flaws and the failures in our brothers and sisters in Christ and in our family members. And there's no, and an inability to sort of celebrate the good things that are there. I've become aware of this even just in, in little league coaching this year. I've been coaching my son's uh, little league team this year, coach pitch last year. It was, it was T-ball. And when they are that age, it is like herding cats. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Nobody has all their skills up to, to snuff yet. Um, only one or two of the boys can catch the ball out of the air. Most of them have to catch it off the ground. A lot of them don't yet have the skill to throw the ball on target or to throw it from third base to first. Um, hitting the ball is still a challenge for, for many of them. And so what's the job of a coach in that scenario? Obviously, you want to correct flaws and train them to do the skills uh, properly. But if all you do during practice is rebuke the flaws while never acknowledging the improvements, you're going to be a rotten coach. In other words, if all you can see is what is lacking and you can never see the progress or see what, God is, or see what, is, what actually has been accomplished, you're going to miss it. And actually... Um, there's been plenty of improvement, not just in my son, but in, in the, other, the other boys, even though there's still a long way, way, way to go. And maybe it's easier to see progress and to see the good in your own kid, and maybe perhaps it's harder with other kids. But you can see it, and you have to see it if you're going to be doing it right. I was thinking about that, and I'm, I'm really concerned that in our church, and this is a danger in any church, but I'm concerned in our church that we have an attitude towards each other that kind of mirrors Paul's attitude towards the Corinthians. He knows there are flaws there. He knows that. He also knows that they're serious flaws. But still he can begin his letter, not with a Debbie Downer glass half-empty critique of their failures, but with a genuine, warm-hearted expression of thankfulness for what is evident about the grace of God in them. 
listen, we're going to have to have this kind of attitude towards one another because we're going to disappoint each other. We're going to fail each other. We're going to do stupid things and sinful things to each other. And we're going to have to learn how to maintain a genuine, warm-hearted love for one another in the midst of our failures and in our sin. We're going to have to learn how to forgive. We're going to have to learn how to be long-suffering. We're going to have to refuse to take into account a wrong suffered, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to have to be patient and forbearing with one another. How, do we, how are we going to do all that if the only thing we see in one another is lack and if we're not seeing and acknowledging evidences of grace in one another's lives. Listen, um, the only way this is going to happen is if we love God so much that we love what he is doing in the world, including in our imperfect, stumbling brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we are. That's what we all are. And we're going to have to remember that. That's Paul's heart. It needs to be our heart. That even when there's correction that needs to take place, there's a genuine thankfulness and warmth for what God has done in his people. He's thankful for what God has done. He's also thankful for what God will do. Look at verse 8. He says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 4 to 7 are thankfulness for how God has, had saved them in the past. Verse 8 is thankfulness for what God is going to do for them in the future. There's a connection between verses, verses 8 and 6. Verse 6, Paul says the gospel was confirmed. Verse 8, Paul says it uses the same word. He says, the gospel, he says the, uh, Jesus Christ will confirm you until the end. And at the end, they will be found guiltless, which means uh, blameless at the final judgment. How? Because Christ what Christ is going to do for them at the last day. That's Paul's way of saying that Christ began this work and he's going to finish this work. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we know that we will be confirmed until the end? Not because of anything that we do. Not because we have it within us in ourselves to be faithful until the end, but because God is faithful. God is never going to leave us or forsake us. And because of that, he's going to confirm us until the end. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to act and to will according to his good pleasure. Listen, Paul's heart towards the Corinthians was a warm-hearted love for sinners who needed transformation who needed to change. Some of those people had some very serious sins going on in their lives, but he still loved them, and he knew that God was not finished with them. And honestly, this love and affection that Paul has for the Corinthians is what we've got to have for one another, but it has to be based on the confidence, not on what we have done, but what on God is doing in us. It's all based on grace. It's all based on our confidence in what the Lord is doing, not in what we are doing. Listen, I don't... Sometimes I think that we can um, over-privatize our gatherings together, especially at the Lord's table, 
And we can make them so introspective that we forget to think about the fact that this is communion. This is a testimony of our solidarity together in Christ. And sometimes I just make a point when we take communion together just to look around and to look in the faces of brothers and sisters and to know that we are all in this thing together. There is not a one of us has a leg up on the other one. We are all sinners. We are all here by grace. And there is a sweetness, if there is any sweetness at all, there is a sweetness here only because of that grace. And it will only be sustained because of that grace. And that's what Paul wants us to look at. And that's what he's going to confront us with in the rest of this book. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would help us to remember who we are, that we are your called out, sanctified people, that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to you. I pray that our hearts would be poised to receive the words to come in this book. Everything that you're going to say about division, about sexual immorality, about the way our marriages are supposed to be going, about the way that the Spirit manifests among us. Lord, I pray for all of it, that you would just get our hearts started at the right place to receive it. We are your people, and we want to be commanded by you because we belong to you because of what Jesus has done and so Father we pray for your help in this and we ask it in Jesus name Amen